Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, thanks as always for the introduction there. This week, I've got Matt Adams here on the show, on the podcast. This guy has an amazing golf show himself, uh, Fairways of Life, which he's been working on. You may have heard on SiriusXM radio over the years. He has got his own website, and he's broadcast all over the world. A huge reach with this show. So many followers. And this guy is really the ultimate five-tool player in all of golf media. And, and I say that, I don't say it lightly, this guy is writing all the time. He wrote a great book about the round of golf I'll never forget. Um, sitting down with major champions and what it meant to them. Just really cool stuff here from Matt Adams. So we get into his background a little bit. We get into, of course, where we met, uh, Pebble Beach, about eight years ago. And really, some of the great conversations we've had. I, I love the guy. Uh, 2015, 2016, 2017 Open Championship. Uh, one of his hats, many hats literally that he wears, is uh, covering those championships for British radio. And it's international radio. He does such a good job with it. You can hear it in his voice, in the inflection in his voice. This guy loves the game of golf, and he is on Golf Channel as well. He's the equipment insider. He does so many great things for the game. So you'll get to it here in just a minute. Before we do, um, let, let's talk about Encore Golf at EncoreGolf.com. You can check out their golf balls. I've been using the Vero X1. It is an amazing golf ball. It's added 15 yards to my golf game. It is unmatched. I have never switched to a golf ball and gotten this much increase in distance off the bat. Against the Vero X1 golf ball, use my promo code B, the letter B, Clubhouse, to get 10% off, $39.99 uh, for a dozen golf balls. Check him out at Encore Golf on social media, Twitter and Facebook, as well as Instagram. But yeah, that's uh, Encore Golf. Give him a shot, and let's get to it here. Matt Adams on Beyond the Clubhouse. I am so pumped up here to welcome my next guest, Matt Adams. You've heard him on at the host of Fairways of Life. You can get that on basically any platform. It's live on Twitter. You see it on YouTube. Anywhere you digest information, you can get the Fairways of Life. It is the only digital radio and digital television daily live golf talk show that immediately becomes a 24-7 on-demand podcast. This is really good stuff. This is Matt Adams. I've known him since 2013. We met at the Crosby Clam Bake at Pebble Beach, the AT&T, as many of us know. Matt, how are you today, my friend? I'm well, Garrett. Thank you for having me on your show. It's ironic. I didn't know it. It's funny that you remembered that we met in 2013 at Pebble, that, that tournament, because the club that I, I just grabbed the club. I do it all the time when I'm, when I'm doing these sorts of interviews. It's more or less just a prop for me, but this one actually came from that event. I, I picked it up at that little shop that, you know, when you go down the stairs by the putting green, it was under one of those shops in that lower level, and he sold antique clubs, and I, this one, for some reason, chose me, and I, I picked it up. So, anyway, connection. 
Yes, links to the past, I believe, is the shop you're thinking of, my friend. Oh, yeah. Links to the past. Kevin Streelman, who, has, of course, has won the AT&T, um, the amateur pro-am portion with Larry Fitzgerald the last few years. That is his absolute favorite gift shop anywhere on earth. So even the players love shopping there. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, let's get to this, though. I am – every time I talk to you, Matt, there is such a conviction to with which you – speak to with which you move uh, when i see at major championships rider cups you are so um, no doubt in your mind about whatever it is you are pursuing in that moment like it's just it emanates from your pores where does that come from matt um i it's probably uh from from a, a good old-fashioned irish chip on the shoulder you know a sense that if the door doesn't open in front of you you know you have to wedge your your heel in there to, to keep keep it open and then and then hit it with your shoulder uh, so, uh, you know, I've, I didn't start out in broadcasting. I, I don't consider myself a professional broadcaster, which is odd, I guess, because I make my living doing it now. But my background and my education was in is business. And I worked in equipment manufacturing and I worked in, on the green grass side of the game. I ran golf courses and uh, a lot of my career I spent turning around distressed golf courses. So it was through that kind of combination that I was able to get into doing media in earnest. It was through that combination that I was able to get into doing my writing because half the year it was so cold and, and nasty that I couldn't do anything else. So I started to write, not even knowing that I was capable of it, really. So my, my philosophy has always been that uh, I don't think I'm ever going to be the most talented at what I do. I've never really... I spent a lot of time worrying about that type of position, but I was always committed and am to say, I'm not going to get outworked. And, and from that standpoint, uh, it reminds me, I guess, of um, one of my heroes in Ben Hogan. And I don't think Hogan really worried about whether he was the best or not. He just knew that he would dig it out of the dirt and outwork him. And so I try as best I can to, to embrace that philosophy. Yes. Well, you also talk about success a lot on your show and about if you want to be a successful person, you have to surround yourself with successful people. And in this world of golf, uh, for you, what, what has helped you? What people have helped you in that regard? Um, a lot of people have helped me. I mean, tons of people have helped me in that regard. I think back to the first PGA professional that I ever worked for. His name was Joe Matus uh, at the Lake Waramog Country Club in Washington, Connecticut. And this was a little nine-hole facility way up on the hills because it's a, the foothills of the Berkshire Mountains. And I started working there when I was in high school because my dad had moved the family to the Danbury, uh, Connecticut area. And uh, I started working there in high school all the way through college. And by the time I was in my sophomore year in college, I was assistant manager of the club. And so it gave me huge experience. Uh, it helped me from a, I guess, from a credibility standpoint, when you go for another job, you've got that title that you can throw on there, but uh, it was just amazing. And it, it was during a time in which uh, we had great fun in what we were doing. I mean, setting up, you set up for a wedding and host a wedding and it might go to one or two o'clock in the morning. And by, you know, six or six thirty, you were putting the carts out for the rounds the next day. It was just, it was an amazing time. And it taught me a tremendous amount about the game. I, on the TV side, I think about Art and Norm Cummings, who were both prominent newspaper people in, in our 
uh, community in, in Northwestern Connecticut. And they were the first two that I ever went to with the crazy idea of doing uh, television golf. I mean, and what we modeled ours after was uh, CBS, where you had the, you know, the little picture in picture. So you had the player on the team, he hit the shot, and then the other camera would follow the ball to, to the hole. They hosted a number of different tournaments. One prominent one at the time was called the Greater New Milford Open. That was the, one of the towns in our region. And at that time, Garrett, the regional sports channels, uh, literally called Sports Channel, were, were huge around the country. They were the primary uh, uh, regional holders of rights, whether you're talking about uh, the, the Knicks or, in some cases, the, the baseball, maybe the Mets or what have you. Uh, the, the Yankees would often found, it, found their own network called Yes Network, and the Red Sox had New England Sports Network, of course. Uh, but some of those New England Sports Network was around, but Yes Network wasn't. So I took that show and I syndicated it to all of these regional sports channel networks. And that experience when I graduated from uh, college got me to ESPN and I learned production and loved it. But the call of the game was, was too much. And I went back and worked in, I, got, I moved to Florida and worked in equipment manufacturing and learned a whole new business, which kind of tapped into my education and my uh, accounting background as well. And I, I did that for many years and, and ended up uh, working for Northwestern Golf in Chicago. And we built clubs at both places, private label manufacturing for names that are now gone. But, you know, a slot line. Uh, we did we did Arnold Palmer's clubs called Peerless. Uh, we did Nicholas clubs. Uh, we did Lynx. We did McGregor. We did Ram. We did Wilson. I mean, I've built for so many different companies over the years in this private label manufacturing, big, large production runs, uh, that that was my experience there. And then I jumped back into the greengrass side of the game again, uh, which is exactly what I was doing before a guy named Chris Castleberry uh, believed, and, and David Logue from the PGA Tour believed that uh, they wanted to have uh, an interview show. And at that point, I was already writing. I'd already started writing for a book series called Chicken Soup for the Soul. And that, the guy who got me started there was named Jack Canfield. Uh, and and um, that whole experience led me to doing the broadcasting side. And I'd had experience with it because I've been doing the, you know, the PGA show for Golf Channel. And in the early days when Golf Channel started, I was in Orlando. So they used to bring me in. So I was familiar with talking to a camera and, you know, kind of formulating your thoughts in that medium. And all of that kind of led to the greengrass side, as I said, and that led to the, the media side. And then I was working originally for Chris uh, for XM Radio. And XM Radio, it was called PGA Tour Network. XM Radio got purchased by Sirius. And so all new management came in and they were New York-based people. And I went up and saw them in New York because remember, I didn't, I wasn't very far from that where I, where I was from my high school years and took the train in and sat down with them. And they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with a new block of programming. And they said, Hey, could you do, could you host a, a daily morning show for us? And I said, sure. Uh, but I have to be done by 9am because I have to be at work. I have to be at the golf course and get people out on the course. And that's the reason why everything I do to this day is a morning show because of the, the, my, what I considered my real job, and it was at the time, of uh, getting people out on the golf course. And, and uh, that was the last 
club job that I had was called Newport National. That was a place. Uh, and I worked for an owner named David Allen. He has since uh, sold that facility as well. And I, I, I've loved it. I wouldn't change one step along the way. Like everybody else, you have your frustrations. You have your hopes that things will happen. And then, you know, when, when my, my show kind of took off, why, I don't know, but it did. And right around 13, 14, conversations started with other media companies. And one of them was Golf Channel. And by 14, Golf Channel had me doing stuff in there. By 15, I signed formally, signed a contract with them. In fact, ironically, I signed it at the Open at St. Andrews, which was a pretty cool place to, to you know, physically put uh, ink to paper. And so I've been with Golf Channel, too, ever since that time, kind of combining these various elements of my background. And the Fairways of Life show that you mentioned that I started you know, back in 2006 I took it off satellite radio and, and syndicated it myself around the world using Spotify and, and TuneIn and iTunes. And it was doing really well as an audio product, but there's so much new technology that exists in the marketplace now. And with the pandemic, we built all of this. I'm, I'm actually sitting in my television studio and this is where I originate now all of my Golf Channel content, including the equipment segments that I do for them and it's where I broadcast the Fairways of Life show every day around the world on the television side as well so it's been a really cool ride and a really fun ride and, and with everything that's going on with the with the technology in the game and I'm not talking about equipment technology I'm talking about broadcast technology surrounding the game of golf surrounding the game of life I think it's just going to continue to diversify and grow and and people like yourself that are that are doing shows like this like this podcast uh, it's it's going to make it very easy. It's going to become like a huge a la carte menu, I think, for people to choose what they want. And the, the most important thing to me, however, was that they could get the Fairways of Life show where they wanted to, how they wanted to, when they wanted to, always available for free and always available anywhere around the world. That was the foundation of why we did it and how we did it. And it, we're very fortunate that it's worked. Yes. Well, and a huge part of, I think, the success of Fairways of Life is your interview style. And just, you've been called the best interviewer in golf by Gary Player and so many big names in the past. What is it for you in your interviews that you're really trying to show your listeners? Um, I don't have any particular agenda in fairness. I think interviewing for me is, is not so much about what questions you ask it's about listening to what the interviewee tells you. And my personal philosophy when it comes to interviews is that if you listen, the person that you are interviewing will always tell you where they want to go next. They'll, they'll always leave you a crumb that will lead you to the next question. And I think when it comes to players in particular, and even legends in, in golf and so forth, because I think we've done 10 over 10,000 interviews now for fairways of life. So that's why I always kind of smile when people tell me I'm a great interviewer. And I kind of think to myself, well, hopefully I picked up something along the way because we've done so many of them, but I'm sure I've done some awful ones too. But my, when it comes to players and legends like that, my hope is that we can show them as human beings so people can get to know them in that I don't care what you do. Uh, I don't care how big a star you are or how successful you are. You've had the same things happen to you on a human level that happened to everybody else. You have your hopes, you have your dreams, you have the things that you worry about. 
you, you have issues with, with life. Uh, you, you have your children that you need to look after and take care of. And so uh, I always think that if, if I can get these stars to tell us their story in their words about how they got to where they are and make everyone realize that they're really no different than we are, uh, they, they just have an incredible skill that they have honed and talent that they've been blessed with that they were able to take to this grand stage. And, and I think that if, if, if I had an approach, I, I suppose that would be it. Yes. Well, these legends and these players, you had spent so much time on your book about them. Uh, of course, the golf round that they'll, the golf round I'll never forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. One of your 12 books you published, Matt, what stands out? from those interviews? Are there a couple moments that stand out? It's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. In all those interviews, there, there's really, I would say there's two that, that stand out to me as, as I would say at top of the vine. Uh, the, the first one was with Charlie Sifford and the, and the second one was with Arnold Palmer. And the reason I mention that now is because it, ironically, they're both with the exact same age. They were 86 years old when, when they conducted these two respective interviews that, that stand out in my mind. Uh, both of them had been on with us a number of times over the years, but these two particular ones, both of which you still can find to this day, if, if you did a search online, you're, you're going to find them. And Charlie Sifford's interview was incredibly emotionally powerful because here you had this man who, who was in failing health and fairness, and you could hear in his voice the pain of what he endured. I, I asked him about whether he realized that he was the Jackie Robinson of golf to have broken the color barrier. And he never really accepted that acclaim. He didn't deny it, but he never really accepted it because to him, he wasn't playing golf to forge a path. He wasn't playing golf to be heroic. He was playing golf because he loved it. And he told stories about leading tournaments and getting phone calls in his hotel room and being told that if he showed up at the course the next day, he would be murdered. Uh, but he carried on and he showed up the next day uh, with a cigar in mouth and said, well, if, if you're going to murder me, you're going to murder me, but I'm going to go there and play golf. And he, he spoke at, at great length about, you know, remember he, when he got on the tour, there was a clause in, in the PGA that said that only it was an only Caucasian clause. And so he had to take action to get on tour. And by the time he did, the real prime of his playing days had passed him, yet he still won two times uh, while he was on the PGA tour. And it hurt him tremendously that he was never able to play at Augusta National. And he told specifically the story of leading an event and coming in the next day, uh, I believe he led it through two or three rounds at this point. I believe it was through three, if memory serves. And the next day there was a sign that said uh, the winner of the tournament this year will not receive an invitation to the Masters. And he, he really was, it, it pained him tremendously that he was barred from doing what he rightfully deserved to do by, by measure of anyone else uh, because of the color of his skin. Uh, but ultimately, the story was a heroic one, uh, in my view, in my definition, because of what he did. And I believe he did forge a path 
for others to follow. Uh, with with you know Lee Elder playing for the first time in Augusta in particular in 1975, uh, Tiger Woods spoke often about uh, these forerunners to him on tour and, and what it meant. Well, it wouldn't have happened when it happened had it not been for Charlie Siffer, and, and that one stands out dramatically to me. Uh, it's very emotional too, uh, and it's well if you get a chance, Gary, like it's well worth listening. Um, the Arnold Palmer one was was different for for other reasons. He too was not in good health. Uh, we believe that that interview was the last long-form sit-down interview that Mr. Palmer ever did. And just to give you a reflection of the man, we were in this tiny little house. It, it sits alongside of the 18th Green at Bay Hill in Orlando. And we had gotten there, you know, obviously early, and we'd set the cameras up. And we only had one camera, and we had a train just on the seat that Mr. Palmer would be sitting in. And, we, you know, we just waited in, in, the, in the galley area of this little tiny home. And then the, we could hear the, the, the doorknob moving and slowly opening and, and where the sun was hitting the door uh, fresh in, in the morning. As the door opened, the light came through the crack like a laser beam. And, and shortly thereafter, it, it silhouetted and outlined the, the unmistakable form of Arnold Palmer. Now, this was after he had slipped on the throw rug and after he had dislocated his shoulder, which really started his his physical decline that, that left, that, that ultimately concluded with the end of his mortal frame. And he, he shuffled his way down the hallway and, and frankly, it kind of seemed like he needed some help, but none of us dare ask the man uh, if he needed help because we knew he, he wouldn't accept it. And he sat down in this big kind of regal looking high back chair and, and went, oh, and he looked around. Now here's a guy even then who was still making $25, $30 million a year in endorsements. And he looked around at this tiny house that had, it definitely had one bedroom. It may have had a second one, but if it did, it was the size of a closet. And the area where, where you, you would eat uh, was clearly one time an outside uh, sitting area, a patio, because it still had the slate on the ground and they enclosed it. So it gave it a tiny bit more space. And so he, he looked around and he said, do you know, I used to live in this house. And, and again, kind of looked about the room and he said, I'm thinking about moving back here again. And it was just remarkable to me that, that this man that had accomplished so much and was so critically important to the game as we know it today from, from the original concept of the modern Grand Slam, the professional Grand Slam, for what he did uh, to the Open and bringing it back into prominence for what he did with Arnie's Armies to being the matinee style uh, cast in the starry role right as television uh, discovered the game of golf all of these things and many many more to think that as he was sitting here uh, in his dotage to look around that room with the humility of saying you know he, he'd be so happy to live in this tiny little house where he deserved to live in a castle mm. no definitely the king so much he's done of course at bay hill i remember that last 2016 bay hill when he was alive he followed his grandson for that Friday afternoon, and Sam Saunders was tied for the lead. Peter Jacobson, I just spoke with Peter, and Peter was out there in the cart with, with Kit, uh, Arnie's wife, and they were all just, it was such a special moment. Um, Matt, I'm going to write a couple stories. If I can give it justice, that moment that it was, Arnie and the pride he had for Sam Saunders, his grandson. What a moment. Um, I want to get to another thing. Of course, there's so much to talk about with Mr. Palmer, but I, I want to get to the Ryder Cup and the passion for it. I believe, we're gonna wrap up here in the next three or four minutes, but I believe that the 
Ryder Cup Europe is in the top two greatest stories in golf for the last quarter century. There's just no doubt in my mind what the, the magnitude, the importance of Seve and what that meant, especially in 2012, winning at in America, winning, coming back the way they did. American fans look at it as, as oh, they just can't get out of their own head and say, oh, we lost. But it's not a great event. We lost. No, it is a phenomenal event. Tell us, Matt, what your thoughts are on what Team Europe has done. Well, I, I credit Tony Jacklin as, ironically, I'm going to use an American term in, in, in person in St. George, Washington, but Tony Jacklin is the equivalent uh, for the Ryder Cup because uh, he who was a recipient of the concession in 1969 from Jack Nicklaus was the guy that rebuilt the Ryder Cup and made it what it is today. When they went to him as captain, he said, look, I'm not going to do it unless. And he wanted the things that were equivalent to what the American team had, the uniforms, the travel, the team rooms, all of these things and more. One of the things that he needed to get back on that side, this now combined European team, the first one was, in fairness, in 1979, they were soundly beat as a, as a combined European team. Uh, but he needed to get Seve back in the fold of the Ryder Cup. Because Seve was done with the Ryder Cup, and very few people realized that. Tony Jacklin was the guy that went to him and put his arm around him and said, I cannot do this without you. And Seve didn't want to come back. He, he felt like he was slighted uh, for a variety of different reasons. And through talking about it and Tony Jacklin saying, look, I've gone through some bumps in the roads too with the European tour, but we can do something special here. And, and he said that Seve said to him, I will help you. And he did help him in every way. Uh, you were talking about the first win in American soil, which was in 1987, but they nearly won in 1983, save for the heroics of, of Lanny Watkins down at uh, uh, down the PGA in, in West Palm. So it's, it's an incredible story of an event that is so big now. If, if you look at a Ryder Cup compared to anything else, even a major, it absolutely swamps it in terms of size and stature. And I'm talking about corporate chalets. I'm talking about the number of people that want to attend the events, this, the overall pitch, the overall volume, the overall excitement, and all of that which is consumed by people around the world. It is an absolutely incredible event. And I, the one thing I recommend to people, if, if, if you can get to something, get to a Ryder Cup. Uh, I think you should go to a Ryder Cup in Europe because it's, it's incredibly unique, but any Ryder Cup is good to go to. Even the ones in the United States are a great deal of fun. Uh, but if, if there's, I know a lot of people would probably say they'd want to go to the Masters, and rightfully so, and I, and I respect and appreciate that too. But Ryder Cups are a different animal. They're just different than anything else, and they're tons of fun. Yes. In 30 seconds, I know you love Ireland. Get to events, get to events. But why do our, my listeners, golf fans, need to get to Ireland in 30 seconds? Uh, because Ireland is unprotected from the ravages of the Atlantic Ocean. Un unlike Scotland, which has great links golf courses, it has Ireland to protect it from the angry sea. So when you have millions and millions and millions of years of the ocean pounding into the landmass, the dune structure, the, the huge mountains of dunes or plummeting valleys are such that it's Lynx golf that is better than and different than anywhere else in the world. So if you love the game of golf and you love Lynx golf in particular, you will be amazed by what you'll find in Ireland. And to that, I'm 100% convinced of. Great stuff. Matt Adams, you can follow him on Twitter at Matt Adams, F-O-L, for Fairways of Life. He is such an icon 
and he's so approachable too. He, he loves to, happy to help uh, younger people like myself in media. So really enjoyed our friendship. And we've met, what, three Open Championships, 2015, 16, and 17. We've got conversations around the world. I always value our friendship now. Yeah, likewise, Gary. Good luck with everything you're doing. And just remember, keep your head down. Don't listen to the noise. All right, really enjoy that there with Matt Adams. Hope you did as well. This guy loves the game. You can just hear it in his voice and the passion he has for it. Uh, and I love the book, the insights there with Arnold Palmer and some of those great stories for his book about the round of golf that they'll never forget, these major champions. What an opportunity. And I've seen Matt with some of these big stars, these superstars, Lee Trevino, Jack Nicholas. I've seen him in many of these environments, and he really does have a great trust with the big names in, in the game. So great stuff from Matt Adams. And uh, we'll, of course, we'll have some videos uh, on Twitter and on Instagram the rest of the way with this. And lastly, Masters is coming up. If you have any suggestions, go ahead and tweet at me at Johnson Garrett or on um, Instagram at Garrett Johnson Golf. And I'd love to include any guest ideas you have uh, for Beyond the Clubhouse as we get fired up for the Masters first major of 2021. Uh, anyway, hope you enjoyed it, and we'll uh, catch up again soon on Beyond the Clubhouse.